1: Hello and welcome to Noon Edition. I'm WFIU-WTIU News Bureau Chief Sarah Whitmire, sitting in today for Mary Catherine Carmichael and Bob Zaltzberg. Today, we're talking about the state of Indiana State Forest. The Sycamore Land Trust recently purchased 600 acres of Brown County land to keep the wilderness area from being developed. Stewards of that land say now that the area is a preserve, there are other challenges to maintaining a forest. Today, we're talking with caretakers of Brown counties and other southern Indiana forests about issues they're facing, including drought-damaged trees and invasive species. Joining us today in the studio are Vicki Muratsky Vicki is a professor at the School of Public and Environmental Affairs. Kim Novak is also a professor in the School of Environmental Affairs. And Christian Freitag, he is the Sycamore Land Trust Executive Director. Thank you all for being here today.
2: It's a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
1: We invite you to join the conversation. You can call us at 812 855 or toll free at 877-285-9348. You can also join our live chat at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition and follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Okay, now getting into the conversation here. According to the Department of Natural Resources, Indiana has more than 5 million acres of forest land. How much of that
2: is state forests? Should we start with here? Vicky? do you know? I, I'm sorry. I'm, I am completely without a clue on the question um, of what's in the state. We've got
3: what? Well, I, a different way of – state land? No, it's much – it? it's even less than that. In fact, um, Indiana – I don't – unless Kim knows. I don't think any of us actually knows the answer to the, to the direct question. But one of the other ways of getting at um, a related point is that Indiana lags far behind neighboring states in the amount of uh, public land that we have set aside for recreation and and public enjoyment. And Indiana has, I think, the figures, um, depending on how you calculate it, uh, clock in at 3 or 4% of Indiana is uh, publicly protected land. Uh, By way of comparison, Michigan to the north is 20% protected land. So um, relative to the other states in our neighborhood, Indiana uh, has very little protected public land.
2: And that's not all forest either. That would include the dunes uh, up on our north shore. It would include places um, like Goose Pond, which is primarily wetland, although it has a bit of forest. So there's a lot more than just forest in that public land. Okay. Okay. How does a forest get designated
1: as a state forest? Because there are obviously a lot of forests that aren't state?
3: Well, the state buys it. Uh, Most of the time that's what happens. When the state has a state forest, whether it's the Pike State Forest or around here we have the Yellowwood State Forest or Morgan Monroe State Forest, uh, the state usually uses, the State Department of Natural Resources um, uses their their money to buy the the parcels that become the state forest. Uh, And they've been doing that for a long time now, decades, uh, generations in fact. I don't know the exact date that the state forest system was created, but it's been a long time now.
2: And I think originally at the point when the early settlers exhausted the farmlands in the area, there was a lot of abandonment of lands. People simply walked off of the land because it, it couldn't produce any longer. And this is back during, you know, early part of this century and, and before that, when people had been on the land for 10 or 12 years, which is about as long as some of the hill country land is farmable, and simply went west to places where homesteading was still going on and you could still... Set up shopkeeping out there and, and farm, and so the land went back onto the tax rolls, and partly to protect it, and partly simply because it was state land; nobody else owned it, and so it became state land. A lot of that land became our our state forest, and it's one of the reasons that Southern Indiana, which isn't particularly farmable, is so well endowed with uh, public land compared to the rest of the state. Yeah, actually, on a related note. Um You'll find many
0: forests in, in southern Indiana and actually in the eastern United States that are about 80 to 100 years old. This is because many of those farmlands that Vicki <laughs> was alluding to were actually abandoned during the Depression. Um, and it's it, actually, the aggregation or uh, succession of abandoned farmlands to forests is an ongoing process in the eastern United States, actually contributing to an increase. And the total amount of of forest land in this part of the country.
2: Indiana only just recently started losing forest land again for a very long time, beginning, as Kim said, from about depression. Um, As those abandoned lands, which had become public lands, began to grow back. Uh, Indiana actually increased in its proportion of of land under farming, which was considered just incredible by most of the the forces out there because everybody assumed that as civilizations became more and more advanced and more and more urbanized that they would lose their forests. And Indiana was busy regrowing them during all of that period. And it's only recently as that land abandonment has stopped – And as expansion in the southern end of the state has picked up again with some of the expansion around Evansville and and some of the um, expansion um, here around Bloomington area, that we're finally beginning to go back over and now start to lose farmland again a bit. Uh, I suspect that the biofuels and and the, the price of corn and soybeans is also contributing to that. So when you talk about this process of
1: growing a forest when the state took over this land, how did that happen in terms of rebuilding these forests? Did the state make a conscious effort to do this? And, and how was that accomplished?
3: In some, in, in some instances, the state took an active role in trying to reforest the lands by doing a, a good number of tree plantings. But left to its own devices, most of southern Indiana wants to be a forest. Uh, Left to its own devices, if you leave it alone, it's going to come up in cedars, and then it's going to come up in tulip poplars, and then it's going to, over the course of time, go through a natural succession process that will become a hardwood forest. Um, That's not the case with every inch of dirt that we have in southern Indiana, but for a lot of it, that's the case. Um, So a lot of it has just been a natural process. But um, as Kim alluded to, uh, during the depression, you know, during the turn of the last century, Indiana was basically deforested. And then the depression hit. People tried to farm that land. Then uh, the depression, the Dust Bowl hit. The farms failed. People moved. The hillsides were abandoned. Our soil was washing into our creeks and down to the Gulf of Mexico. Um, As part of the New Deal projects, the Works uh, Works Progress Administration happened, the Tennessee Valley Authority, the Civilian Conservation Corps, all of them were active in southern Indiana. And they did, among other things, they did flood control projects. But some of the kinds of projects that we did were reforestation projects. In fact, that's why you see if you walk around the Hoosier National Forest or some of our state forests or public lands in Brown County, you'll see a lot of pine trees. Uh, those pine trees aren't, most of the time those pine trees are not native to this part of the state or this part of the world for that matter. Um, but they planted those trees because they grow so much faster than the hardwoods would grow and they needed to stabilize the the hillsides, the soil on the hillsides, uh, for erosion control basically. And so, um, we love those beautiful pine stands that we have in the Hoosier and in Brown County State Park. They're lovely to walk through and they smell great and they provide good habitat, but they're not actually technically technically native. my point is only that uh, I think most of the reforestation has probably happened on its own devices. But this, uh, the state and the federal governments have taken an active role in some, in some cases.
1: Is there any disadvantage to having trees that aren't native?
2: There's always some disadvantages to having non-natives. <clears throat> and in our area, uh, for the most part, these forests are not being – excuse me. Are not being perpetuated. So um, in a lot of cases on the Hoosier, if you walk in these forests, the trees that are coming up underneath them are the native trees of our forest. And they're almost more like a very long band that's in the slow process of being sort of – it's not so much being torn off as kind of falling apart. There are other places where a few of them are um, are perpetuating themselves, but they have – not been nearly as harmful as a number of the other invasive tree species. So we've got Tree of Heaven and Royal Polonia, for example, as tree species that are coming into the state, which are, are really clearly detrimental. The pine trees are not that different from what would have probably have been here oh... 8,000 years ago, say, as the glaciers were rolling back, and this area would have been in pine trees. So the land hasn't completely forgotten everything that it ever knew about pine trees. Uh, And a lot of the birds that are migrating through to go north uh, to northern Wisconsin and Minnesota and Canada uh, find friendly habitat in those areas as they're migrating through because that's the habit. They're going to boreal forest, and the pine trees look like that to them. Also, for the most part, frankly, these are little tiny stands. I mean, the Band-Aid analogy isn't a bad one. They really are little patches. Mm-hmm. So they don't take over an awful lot of land, and so they don't disrupt all that much. Whereas things like Royal Polonia and Tree of Heaven, which are coming in and, and becoming very successful invaders, have the potential of creating what we call monocultures, stands or trees that have no other kinds of trees in them, uh, and in the case of Tree of Heaven, it actively poisons other things around it, and it spreads through its roots as well as by very, very numerous uh, seeds. And it's already got a very good stronghold in the state, and there aren't very many efforts yet uh, to do anything to counter it. And as a result, it's gotten a, a really good start. If you can,
1: how do you measure a problem like that? How how bad is it in Indiana? Tree of Heaven is,
2: is bad and getting worse. It's coming in um, primarily off of um, the Ohio and coming up through the, the watersheds that feed down into the Ohio. But I know myself, and I haven't wandered the Deem extensively, I know of three separate places in the Deem where it's being dealt with, and only one of them is, is being fought at all. Um, so the way that you quantify it is by trying to estimate how much area is involved, and that requires people who are out and moving around on the land, which, you know, an awful lot of our land is private, and we have no right being on those lands unless somebody invites us in to, to deal with an issue. Um, so how bad it is on, on private land is not particularly well known. It's, it's known to be in the Hoosier and the state forests that are in the southern end of the state uh, with some vigor. And actually, one of the... the List serves that talks about invasive species in this in the area uh, was just talking about royal Polonia, which is a gorgeous, gorgeous tree, but pretty invasive. And if you drive from here down to the Smokies, uh, long about the beginning of May, you see these gorgeous big purple flowers on the trees. And it's like, what on earth are those doing there? And these pinky purple things all around. And it's royal paulonia, and you can see how well it's spreading. But with the, the climate warming up, we're seeing it into southern Indiana now as well. And we're going to be seeing more. Kudzu is going to be getting happier in, in southern Indiana and, and moving further north. So people on the ground and estimating area. So maybe, Christian, maybe you can answer this. When we're talking about thousands, even
1: millions of acres of forest, how do you stop something like that?
3: Oh, <laughs> it's, it reminds me of a question. Uh, that we get asked sometimes. We talk When we talk with landowners, we we make them promises that are forever. Uh, we are going to help you protect your property forever. And some people ask me the question, uh, what does forever mean? It's this metaphysical question that I can't answer very well. Um, so how do you stop an uh, in, in invading army of, and Vicki went into two or three of the invasive species. I mean, the list is long. Um, and she only named a few of the bad ones. But you know, when you start getting into other invasive species that are impacting our forest understory, you talk about things like garlic mustard and Japanese stiltgrass, and things that just become Shruby monocultures, things. shrubby things that absolutely just take over complete areas. And how do you stop them? Well, people are working on it. Um, sometimes you you hope against hope. I think that's the the, the horrible, um, sad answer to it. Um, and and I'll point out also, and I, Vicky. Uh, intimated this, but climate change is going to affect this also. I mean, um, if climate change predictions bear out, then some of the species like kudzu that she mentioned that don't really do well in southern Indiana because we get cold enough most of the time in the winter, um, they're going to get a foothold here that they weren't able to get before. um, If we only change just a few fractions of a degree, Um, some of those species are going to do a lot better 10 years from now, 20 years from now. God, God forbid, 50 years from now, uh, what that will look like if we can't slow things down. Um, how do you stop them? Well, uh, the state and federal governments spend a lot of money trying to, to control them and try to control certain areas in particular. Um, but it's, an, it's a moving target. All, the technology for that is always getting better. Sometimes the best you can do is cut down the, the honeysuckle and paint the stump with herbicide. Um, and honestly, that is such a time and resource-intensive effort that uh, it's almost a lost cause in some places. Um, and there are some species, some of the invasive species like Japanese steelgrass, for example, that uh, if you try to get rid of that, if that gets into a creek and the seeds start spreading through a creek bottoms, trying to get rid of that is almost um, – it's it's just impossible sometimes so we do the best we can and we try to keep areas that are currently pristine as pristine as possible that's one of the things that we focus on areas that uh, haven't yet been invaded or there's maybe just a real light touch from an invasive uh, we try to go in and control it and keep the areas as pristine as possible but um, it's, it sounds horrible to say that we give up as a conservation community that we give up on certain areas but uh, there's a limit to what we can do we have to be honest about that too
2: there's a lot of groups and a lot of volunteers working on this as well. Monroe County has the, the Monroe County IRIS group, uh, Identify and Reduce Invasive Species, uh, which does a lot of outreach. Indiana actually made some forward strides in terms of uh, starting to prevent some of the aquatic invasives that have been getting into our rivers and our lakes. And we, it's, a, it's bad enough dealing with the ones that we already have. That's, that's very tough. The best thing is to try to stop more from coming in and trying to control some of the the trade and some of the the venues that come in. Ballast water in the Great Lakes is a big problem. Boats that are coming from someplace else that have loaded up on water for stability that then dump it once they take on their cargo and don't need the extra weight and dump a whole lot of of new organisms into the water. So to the extent that we can stop new things from coming, that's a great way to go Mm -hmm. and we can focus on what's already here.
1: We have a question in our live chat I want to get to here. But before we do that, I want to remind you, you can also join the conversation. What do you know about how Indiana's forests are doing? You can call at 812-855-0811, toll free at 877-285-9348, or join our live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition.
3: If I could interject just briefly, if anybody wants to send an update on the IU score, that would be welcome also.
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the The question we have here in the chat is whether invasive species are just part of the natural order of things. Won't forests just take care of themselves?
2: Do you want to take that one, Kim?
0: <laughs> sure. Um, you know, in answering that question, it might be, be useful to think about a case study. Um, and Vicki and Christian have mentioned some invasive uh, plant species to to Indiana's forests. But it's also important when you're thinking about health and sustainability of forests to think about invasive insects. Um and there's an there's a ongoing outbreak of an uh, um, uh, insect called the emerald ash borer, which does a very good job of killing ash trees. Um, it was introduced in 2002 in Michigan. Uh, it originates from East Asia. And since then, it has just spread very rapidly across all of the forests of the Midwest. Um, and it, it is well on its way to, to decimating ash populations. Um, and I don't, I don't think that it would be... Be correct to say that that uh, uh, an insect from East Asia arriving in, in Detroit, Michigan, is a is a natural process. Um, it was one that was certainly aided by the transport of of goods by by humans.
2: It's true that every once in a while something makes a huge jump by itself. Cattle egrets seem to have arrived uh, in the Americas all on their own from Africa without any help from anybody as near as we can tell. But by and large, things that are arriving here from Asia and Africa have had a lot more help than the things that are coming up here from Kentucky. Uh, so in that respect, uh, it's it's certainly a new and different thing. And we can lose all the ash trees in our forests. It's true. The other trees will fill in. But every time we lose another species, we lose some diversity. And that diversity is some of our insurance against the damage that comes from an ice storm or the damage that's likely to come as a result of changing climate, because every one of those species has a slightly different toolbox. And depending on what stress hits the forest, that toolbox may be more or less important. So we've already lost American chestnut. We may be getting it back if if they get it all right. We lost American elm. That's a little bit slower coming back. Uh, nobody thinks they've got a fix for emerald ash borer at the moment, so we're going to lose three or four species of ash tree that are not coming back anytime soon. Some upland trees, some lowland trees. So we'd like to keep our toolbox if we can. Are there any
1: other states that are doing a, a really great job working to stop the ash borer? That we?
0: I think many states are working very hard. Um, to an extent what I mean, what Vicki said is true. We are not going to be able to stop the outbreak. There is some opportunity. To protect high value ash trees. So, ash are a very pretty tree, and they show up in front lawns and on university campuses. Make and good if baseball you, bats. And baseball bats. <laughs> they're also uh, used to make Fender, Stratocaster, and Telecaster guitars. Um, cool. Stuff. So, that's just from Mines of But if you, if you start early enough, it is possible um, to, to have some success. Protecting individual ash trees with the application of incesticides and, and pesticides, um, okay. but it's certainly not not something that could be done on a it's large scale
1: scale, yeah.
2: scale. But square, but not for the forest. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. We have a caller I want to get to now. Doug from Lyons, Indiana, has been waiting patiently. Doug, go ahead with your question.
4: Hi, guys. Hello. Uh, Lou. Hi. Uh, this is directed to Christian. Um, are you guys having issues? with illegal dumping along your properties, and I refer to uh, Porter's Corner out on Vernal Pike. Yeah,
3: uh, the property that, it, you said Doug, right?
5: Yeah. The
3: property that Doug's referring to is a, a roughly a 400-acre property west of Bloomington um, that was donated to us several years ago. It was, uh, part of the property was formerly used as the uh, topsoil composting uh, property owned by a man named David Porter. Um, yeah, we the short version of the question. The short answer to the question is yes. We do get dumping problems on that property and every other property that we have, and we do the best that we can to control it. We've got a team of dedicated volunteers and um, several staff members who help out dealing with that. The county, Monroe County, for example, has been uh, the solid waste uh, district has been helpful picking up things when tires get dumped and stuff like that. Uh, But we have to deal with it all the time, and you'd like to think that the people who live in – the people of southern Indiana – we live in such a beautiful place. You'd like to think that every single person who lives here takes such pride in it that they wouldn't dump shingles or tires or anything like that. But uh, it's just not the case, and it almost seems like you can't find a gully in southern Indiana that doesn't have a washing machine or uh, something rolled down. it. old Chevy. (laughs) When we we can – when we build when we build a a project budget to get a property protected, we build into that the property of um, maintaining and managing the property, and part of that is sometimes part of that is cleanup. To be honest with you, um, having to do some salvage work and take out some of the trash.
4: Having having been in the uh, environmental trade, and I have cleaned up out there at Porter's Corner.
3: Great, thank you, thank you.
4: Um, I have noticed that a downturn in the economy results and a lot of those washing machines and um, metal objects being removed and taken to the scrap yard. So it's, it's kind of a left-hand, right-hand. It's true. But you guys keep up the good work.
3: Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for the Take call, care.
2: Doug.
1: So we've talked about invasive species, talking a bit about litter there. What would you all say are the biggest threats to state forests right now in Indiana? Maybe, Vicki, we can start with you and go across.
2: Invasive species are certainly one of the issues that are out there. I, I think it depends on, on whether you're looking at forests as a, a timber production area, forests as wildlife, forests for recreation. Um, invasive species are a big deal. They move out a lot of the things that provide nesting habitat for native birds or um, food resources for migrating birds, cover for small mammals. Um, I, I know we're going to get hate mail for this, and, and I love cats, but domestic cats in, in forests are... Are known to take out an awful lot of wildlife as well. So a lot of our it, it's not the birds that are all the way up in the trees. They can handle a few individuals who get silly foraging down on the ground but the ones that nest on the ground and nest in shrubs are particularly vulnerable and we know that we've got reduced populations of those in our forests as a result of, of that kind of pressure and because so many of our invasives replace plants in the understory both in the herbaceous layer and in the shrub layer they too are, are changing the habitat for those lower-using hmm. uh, species, it's interesting. I'd never thought of that before.
3: Christian would come. <clears up. throat> well, I want to make clear that Sycamore Land Trust. Uh, we we don't do we don't do specifically state forest work. We are on the private side of land conservation in indiana the state forests are owned by the state government and managed by the division of forestry and the department of natural resources so sycamore land trust covers 26 counties in southern indiana and works with private landowners whether they own forest land or wetlands or grasslands or family farms we help private landowners figure out ways to protect their important natural areas or family farms Um, so to that extent we don't have a lot to say about what happens in the state forest but as a as somebody who who lives and works in the conservation community in Southern Indiana, I I know that some people um, have strong differing opinions on the way that the state forests are managed, um, and that changes over time. And and there's good arguments on all of those on on on, on different sides of how the state forests um, the best way to manage them. From somebody who works on the private land conservation side of things, I'd say that what I would what I would like to see more of, and what I, I consider to be a the, one of the primary problems with the state forest is the lack of connectivity you 've got a forty acre chunk here, an eighty acre chunk here. never the twain shall meet and it, it's it's a product of um, the way that they were acquired as Vicky said. If you look at a topographic map of southern Indiana, whether you 're looking at the state forest or the Hoosier National Forest, which basically runs all the way from Bloomington all the way down to the ohio river it 's a complete checkerboard um, and it 's a patchwork quilt of different protected lands and um, it's it, it's That's one of the biggest problems for creating high-quality habitat is connecting those pieces. Um, Sometimes if the opportunity to – if there's a 40-acre inholding in a big forest and you can't get that protected when it comes up for sale – it gets purchased by somebody and, and cut up into five-acre chunks, and you'll never put Humpty Dumpy back together again. Um, so over the course of time, it's proven difficult both for us and for the state and the federal government through the Hoosier National Forest to try to connect those pieces over time. And the more we can do that, the better the better habitat we can create overall. So I, I would like to see more of that.
1: I do want to talk more about that later. but
0: Yeah. Um, well, I would, I would echo what, what Vicky said and, and what Christian said. I think invasive species, invasive insects, invasive plants are... are Big threats to the health of forests in southern Indiana, um, as is ongoing fragmentation. Uh, to that list, I would add, I would add uh, uh, just the point that, that forests are also sensitive to weather conditions and meteorological conditions, and are particularly sensitive to droughts. So, you know, agricultural species, corn and soy, uh, will do poorly in a drought year, and the same is true of forests. Trees need a certain amount of water um, to 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 carry on photosynthesis, which is the process by which they. Remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and and turn it into into biomass. Um, and uh, different different forest species are differentially sensitive to drought conditions. So different species are more likely to um, experience adverse effects from drought than others. So uh, if 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 what the climate models predict holds true and this region experiences more frequent and more severe droughts in the future, we may see shifts in the demographics of of the species that are that are in our
2: forest tulip so. poplars are particularly experiencing A lot of mortality from the last few droughts. Oddly, some of the black oaks, which on sand do amazingly well up in the northern end of the state, but we've been seeing uh, black oak mortality down here as well. And I think almost anybody who's lived through the last few years uh, in the area will have seen wilting from their trees or, or some dieback.
1: We do have to take a short break. I want to remind you, you're listening to Noon Edition. Today, we're talking about the state of Indiana's forest coming up next. We'll talk some more about the drought. I also want to dive into your research, Kim, and we can talk about timbering in the state forests as well. Stay with us.
4: This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville. Information at smithville.net. You can take WFIU with you by downloading our podcasts directly to your PC, Mac, or MP3 player. Programs such as Noon Edition, Ask the Mayor, and Harmonia, and short features like Kinsey Confidential, the Ether Game musical mini-quiz, and play and opera reviews are all available on demand. Pick them up at wfiu.org.
1: Hello, you're listening to Noon Edition. I'm Sarah Whitmire. Today we're talking about the state of Indiana's forests. Joining me in the studio are Kim Novick and Vicky Moratsky, both IU School of Public and Environmental Affairs professors, and Sycamore Land Trust Executive Director Christian Freitag. You can join the conversation, 812-855-0811, toll free at 877-285-9348. There's an active discussion going on online. You can join that as well. That's at WFIU.org noonedition Noon Edition. And the Twitter handle is at Noon Edition. Let's start here by going back to the phones. We have James on the line, and James is from Nashville. Go ahead, James.
4: Hi. Um, just had a quick question for the guests. If, uh, do you have any recommendations for planning and planting for climate change uh, for private landowners and their forests?
2: Hi, James. It's Vicky. Hi. There's an awful lot of research that's being done on this, and almost all of it so far has stopped short of making actual on-the-ground recommendations. But the, the, the higher-level um, recommendations that are being made so far are basically that people experiment. We, we do know, and the Forest Service has just, um, they're in the process right now, Uh, Of putting out some information about which tree species are expected to be winners and losers in the central hardwoods. And so from that, you can get sort of a sense of of which trees are are expected to fare well and, and which to fare badly. And some of those are local trees. Our white oaks are not going anywhere anytime soon. White oaks exist all the way down to Louisiana. So the climate can change a fair bit and white oaks might still have the toolbox to handle it. Um, But the question of whether or not we should start moving in some of the species that will be more comfortable here, trees walk super slow. And... A lot of them are still catching up with the glaciers, and they are just not going to break into a quick trot to catch up with climate change. And so whether or not we want to start bringing some of those species in very carefully and slowly, not moving them great distances, but keeping them where their native diseases and predators and parasites and so forth will make them just a normal part of a forest uh, is an interesting question. We know that we're going to lose some. so. Whether or not we should gain some is the next question, but I think the Forest Service stuff is going to give us some of what we need to actually get on the ground and think intelligently about which species we might expect that we're going to lose, what they do for us, do they provide food, are they holding the soil in place really well, are they one of the only species that grows in some particular kind of location, and then think intelligently about what we might want to do about the fact that we're going to see declines in those species. Thanks for the call, James.
5: Thank you all very much.
2: I want to go to a question now from
1: the live chat. Someone asking whether landscaping is contributing to the spread of invasive species in our forests. Vicky or Christian?
3: Well, it has in the past. Um, it has in, in ways that... Uh, it relates actually to the last question, I think, in some ways, because when we start thinking about species that we want to do well twenty years from now, fifty years from now, we better be darn careful about what we do because we've we've messed that up more than once in the in the past. Um, it wasn't too many years ago that. The state and federal governments recommended things like planting crown vetch and autumn olive and um, other species to use as landscaping tools or to control erosion or as ground covers. And we've learned over the course of time that some of those species have been just really horrible uh, introductions. Um, And so we have to be really careful about how we do it. It has been a problem in the past. I would like to say, I would like to think, I should say, that we've learned some lessons about how to uh, tread lightly and be careful about things. Um,
2: a lot of the suggested species in the past weren't from North America, which was a lot of the problem. Most of what's being talked about now in terms of sort of forward-looking restoration or forward-looking plantings is only talking about moving things from Kentucky up into Indiana, for example. So hopefully yep, I that's think Christian's right yep. that we've got some hope that, that we can do some of this. And if we're careful and slow and watch what we're doing.
3: Yeah, we've, we've stubbed our toes enough times that hopefully uh, we've learned a few lessons from it.
2: No, I lived in
1: Missouri for a number of years, and they did not want new home builders planting Bradford pears. And when I moved here and built a home, the first thing they did was plant a Bradford pear in the front yard. Mm-hmm. And my first reaction was, wait a minute, does, does that sort of rule not exist here? I'm wondering, Bradford pear specifically, is that a problem here?
3: Yeah, it is a real problem. In fact, um, some of the pear trees that were planted along the Beeline Trail in Bloomington um, there was a debate about whether or not those should be removed because of the potential detrimental effects of them being invasive. Hmm. To other, uh, They actually hybridize with other native plants, and they become very difficult to control. Um, another one that comes up from memory is uh, one of the dogwood blights that we had not too many years ago. Anthracnose. Anthracnose. Um, that was the product of uh, dogwood trees that weren't. Local trees, but dogwood trees being brought in for landscaping um and they were infected with certain things that didn't um, that spread and didn 't do well and God forbid i mean can you imagine southern Indiana without dogwoods i mean it 's just a it 's an amazing thing to think about a horrible thing to think about and so landscaping has you know it bears its share of the blame but um Everybody wants to have a nice spot. We want to live in a nice community. We want to have nice houses with nice, nice yards. I mean, landscaping is not going away. We can't put our heads in the sand on that. We have to just try to be smart about how we do things. Mm-hmm.
1: I want to go back to the phones. Paul has been waiting. Paul, thank you so much for calling Noon Edition. Go, go ahead with your question.
3: Hi. Well, my question is about uh, if the state is doing anything about deer in the forest. Where I live, I've, I've noticed an awful lot of browse over the years.
4: Of uh you know the the undergrowth and even the small trees uh, it, it's nothing like it was years ago
3: interesting question so the the state um, for example there the state is doing things in places like brown county state park where they're researching um, they're doing enclosures where they're, they're actually exclosures, yeah. I should say, where the deer are not allowed to go. Um, and they're trying to analyze what the effects on the forest, on the, on the regrowth and the understory is for those areas that don't get the browse. Um, you know, I, I heard an interesting story years ago about how when they, had to reint- when they reintroduced deer into the state of Indiana, Selma Steele, who was the wife, a conservationist, and a wife of, of T.C. Steele, the artist, she warned against reintroducing the deer because we were reintroducing... Uh, a predator a predator on the on the flora that didn 't have any predators itself, um, basically no major predators itself, and she warned that that would have detrimental impacts on our forest regrowth. Um, I think that 's proven true over time, and you know there 's a obviously bloomington 's wrestling with the issue of how to deal with it in the in city limits um, but with with regard to the state lands, the state owned lands whether it 's state forest. Or the state parks they are trying to figure that out but they definitely i think the point is well made from the caller that they are they definitely realize that the overbrows is a problem
2: yeah. indiana is one of the few states that's forward-looking enough and, and i know some people will disagree but i very strongly think that it is a forward-looking thing that it will hunt its state parks from time to time when it's necessary people tend to want to think of parks as really really safe places uh, sycamore Land trust will do the same thing if, if it's got um deer issues. Um, Right now the research and teaching preserves here at IU where there's been some very good research that Angie Mm -hmm. Shelton's been involved in Um, Have really shown just horrific It's not that deer are non-native here They're they're perfectly native But deer are native here right along with mountain lions Wolves, bobcats And a number of other things These days the major thing killing deer is not our hunters uh, It's our cars And they don't do a good job Because they only catch them when they're on the road And as a result we've got terrific overpopulations And we do have Big losses in our understory Back again to those understory nesting birds uh, not bad enough that they're they're vulnerable to predators when they sit on the ground. There isn't anything with them there on the ground because the deer tend to have eaten so much of it.
0: Yeah, and I just wanna I wanna um, highlight something that. Christian said and he mentioned he was talking about when deer were reintroduced. And I'm not sure if that's common knowledge. It certainly wasn't common or known to me until recently yeah. that there was a period of time when there were there no
2: deer.
0: Any, uh, or turkeys. They were native. Yeah. And Avers. then uh, it was late 19th century, early 20th century. They were, they were absent from the landscape and then reintroduced in the 30s and 40s.
1: Wow. That is interesting. Yeah.
0: Thank, you for th- thank you for the call, Paul. Thank
1: you. Alex is on the line from Bloomington. Alex, go ahead with your question.
5: Yes, hello. Uh, Christian, uh, I thought, was a little bit too optimistic in his remark (laughs) that all the errors of the past, like Bradford Pears, have been taken into consideration. I am expecting replacement for my um, removed five crab apple trees, for more than six months already, and of the options I have, uh, two, one of them is a Japanese tree. So it doesn't seem to be the case that um, people in charge have done the analysis of functional requirements. What is expected? What's the function of those three plot uh, trees uh, as a replacement? And what are the best choices? I
3: just appreciate being called optimistic. That's certainly not something I get every day. Uh,
5: Do you
1: have a response, Christian? Sure?
3: Well, there's there's a as Vicky uh, mentioned earlier, there are a lot of resources made available to, to landowners, private landowners, through the State Department of Natural Resources or through the Federal uh, Forest Service. Um, which there's an office down in Bedford for the Hoosier National Forest. Uh, it's very easy for landowners to access. Uh, what they consider to be native safe plants you know what if you want to build um, take the non-native things out of your yard and replace them with things that are just as beautiful but native and and not going to be any invasive problems there's plenty of resources out there for landowners on the internet as well as they have brochures that they've printed so um, folks should check those out
2: several of our um, uh, landscaping companies and nurseries here in uh, bloomington are are participating in a program called uh, Grow Green, Grow Native, which is um, something that was done by the MCI Iris group that I mentioned earlier. And those people will have um, cards on their plants in the nursery saying which ones are native and which ones are not so that you can actually go through uh, and see what's what's a good plant. Okay. Well, thank you for the call. And what
1: are you noticing about Indiana Forest? You can tell us on our live chat at org slash noon edition or you can give us a call at 812-855-0811. And, Kim, I want to get you more involved in this conversation. Sure. <laughs> I apologize. We haven't gotten to talk much about your research at all. And I know you have a team of researchers in the Morgan-Monroe State Forest. Can, can you explain what they're doing there?
0: Yeah, sure. So I work with um, with some other Indiana University faculty, uh, specifically Faiz Rahman, who's in the Department of Geography, and Richard Phillips, who's in the Department of Biology. And we're really interested in characterizing interactions between forests and the atmosphere. So a little before the break, I, I mentioned that through the process of photosynthesis, trees are able to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere and turn it into carbohydrates where it can either be stored in the plants, stored in the soil, or, or respired back to the atmosphere through the process of respiration. And we're interested in, in studying this, this movement of CO2 to the forest and then back um, to the atmosphere because as many of your listeners probably know, uh, atmospheric concentrations of carbon dioxide are increasing due to burning of fossil fuels. Carbon dioxide is a heat-treeping gas and is contributing to ongoing climate change. Um, And to put things in perspective, I think the global average flux of anthropogenic CO2, so CO2 from fossil fuel emissions every year, is about six gigatons per year. Um, So remember that number six, and then compare it to the movement or the flux of CO2 from the atmosphere to plants through photosynthesis. And that number is 120 gigatons, give or take. So much, much larger flux than the flux of anthropogenic CO2 to the atmosphere. Now what happens is much of that CO2 that comes into the plant is quickly respired back to the atmosphere um, so that the, the net balance... Or the net amount of CO2 that is stored in a forest in any given year is, is relatively small compared to that number of 120, but still, in the grand scheme of things, uh, forests important. are a very important carbon sink, and they, they actually remove about 30 or 40 percent of global anthropogenic emissions of CO2 to the atmosphere every year. And so what we do in Morgan Monroe State Forest, we have a large tower, um, it's about 46 meters tall. Um, and I suppose I should I should think in feet Football here. So we yeah. <laughs> <You laughs> multiply that by three, and you get to feet. So uh, close to 150 feet tall, um, and you can see it from from certain certain trails out in the in the forest. And at the top of this tower, we have um, some meteorological instruments, a, a carbon dioxide gas analyzer, and some some wind instruments. And I'll, I'll spare spare your listeners the details of the theory. But what it amounts to is that under certain conditions, which are often experienced you can use these data to get an estimate of the net movement of CO2 from the atmosphere uh, to the forest, a continuous estimate, um, which is a a powerful data stream. And it's even more powerful when you consider that this tower in Morgan Monroe State Forest is one of over 100 in North America and Mm -hmm. over 400 globally that are making the exact same kind of measurements, so continuous measurements of CO2 transfer from the atmosphere to the ecosystem. Um, So when you you take all of that data together, then you can really begin to understand the ways in which um, um, ecosystems and forests interact with the atmosphere. How will ongoing climate change affect the size of this movement, uh, the size of carbon sinks in forests? And then is it possible that changes in carbon storage in forests will will have a feedback effect and either accelerate or slow down um, um, ongoing climate change? We
1: have a caller. I'm wondering if Chris is going to be asking more questions about your research, Kim. But Chris is from Cording. Chris, go ahead. Chris, are you on the line? Oh, it looks like we just lost Chris. I apologize, Chris. If if you call back, it's 812-855-0811. We don't have a lot of time left in the program, and I do want to talk a bit about logging in state forests in particular I'm hoping we can talk about just the increase in logging, and I know there are, there are a lot of arguments for and against. So, Vicki, maybe you can walk us through it.
2: Yeah. the um, When the Daniels administration came in, how many years ago? <laughs> we all feel older now, all of a sudden. Um, a while ago, um, there was a, a pretty significant change uh, in the logging strategies here. But uh, at the same time, the people who were in charge of the forest at that point um, did bring in the outside groups that certify sustainability of forestry. And so both the Sustainable Forestry Initiative and the Forest Stewardship Council, these are the two big international uh, certifying bodies, came in and spent a fair bit of time looking at Indiana forestry. And... They don't look at forests just in terms of can we keep churning out the same number of logs and boards. They look at the social implications. They look at economics. They look at wildlife. Uh, And both of these certifying bodies have certified Indiana forestry. That doesn't mean that the forests are being managed to suit everyone. I I don't think there's anything larger than maybe a pencil that's being managed anywhere that suits everybody. Um, And certainly that's an issue here. But uh, in terms of, of the standards that these two bodies keep, in Indiana is doing what it needs to. Um, there was still an, an enormous amount of controversy where you log, when you log. I know there was a a, a forest stand um, near Bloomington, I think here in Monroe County, um, that was a particular favorite with a lot of people that had been left unlogged for a long time. It was a particularly old stand, and there was a, a lot of acrimony about the fact that that was one of the the first stands that got targeted. It had big trees. I'm sure they were valuable. Uh, There may well have been other considerations. So it's, it's hard to get both the politics and sort of the responsible stewardship right. But in terms of the responsible stewardship, the international bodies that judge these things have pronounced our forests to be sustainable. And Kim, you know a lot about logging in other states
1: too. So what do you think of the job Indiana is doing relative to other states?
0: You know, I'm 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 probably not not positioned to answer that question directly, but what I what I do know is that you know, logging and and, and harvesting has has changed a lot over time. Um as an anecdote, I'm involved with a research project where we needed to find a clear-cut forest um where we're measuring Certain components of the water cycle over, over forests of many different ages, including one that had just been harvested. And I'm sorry, clear cut, just so everyone yeah. knows what that is. That's where they go in and they cut down. Well, off. I thought a clear cut was when they go in and they pretty much raise all the trees and they take most of them out and they leave some, some debris left. And so what you have is a, is a landscape that has no trees and a lot of, a lot of logs and, and probably some disturbed dirt and maybe a lot of erosion. Anyways, I, I visited our clear cut site. Um, And I was amazed because that's not what I saw at all. I mean, yes, sure, many trees had been removed and there was plenty of debris on the ground. But uh, there's a a practice common in in, uh, forest harvesting now called shelterwood harvesting, where a certain number of trees are left behind to function as seed trees and to help forest regeneration. So it still looks like a forest, even though it's a clear cut. And this is one advance in forest in uh, forest management practices that I think is, is a, a net plus for sustainability. And there are others, including selective harvesting when you remove um, just a few trees from a forest instead of taking but them all.
2: Honestly, here here in Indiana, and the Nature Conservancy is on board on this in a number of places as well, our oak trees and our hickory trees are particularly useful trees from a biodiversity standpoint. They're, they provide more food for more different kinds of wildlife than a lot of other different kinds of trees, but they're what we call early successional trees. They're trees whose babies love the sun, and they need the sun in order to grow well. If they don't have sun, they're going to lose out to the maple trees and the, the beech trees and the, the trees um, that are, are going to shade them out. And the only way to continue to have a strong component of oaks and hickories in the forest is to do the kind of clear-cutting that Kim referred to in the first place, where you really do take essentially all of the forest canopy out because you need the sun to hit the forest floor and let those baby trees do what they do best. And so... Shelter woods and, and seed tree leaves and, and a variety of other techniques are used a lot. Um, we still even do selective logging where you're really only going in and taking individual trees at very widely spaced intervals. But clear-cutting has its place, and it's, it's tremendously hard to say that to people who love The cathedral, the almost sacred kind of a space that you find in a forest, because it's gone, and it's gone in a fairly brutal, fairly obvious way. The stumps are still standing there. There is going to be scarring of the earth from some of the equipment, and you can do the best you can to prevent that as much as possible, but the overstory will be gone when you do a clear cut And the idea is that you're growing the next cathedral But the process of doing that And the process of, of trying to get uh, Some of these um, commercially valuable Biodiversity valuable trees back Unfortunately takes us In the long haul If you never let these forests burn If you never let an ice storm take them down If you never let anything else happen You end up with a forest in which these are rare trees
3: hmm. To add something to that <coughs> um, we You mentioned at the top of the show uh, Sycamore Land Trust had just purchased 600 acres in Brown County, which we call the Downey Hill property, close to the state park. That property uh, had been heavily impacted by logging about 35 years ago. Um, in the conservation community, or I guess in America, we often hear about the concept of save our fragile planet. And I know where that motivation comes from. I mean, we live and breathe this stuff every day, uh, literally, I should say. But, um, to relate to go back to the optimism that Alex called about earlier, um, the planet isn't fragile. Um, if you were to walk out at Downy Hill right now, you wouldn't unless you had a really trained eye for these things, you would get that cathedral feeling that Vicky's talking about it The planet uh, does a good job regenerating, left to its own devices and with some proper management and with some protection from a land trust uh, the planet will really do a good job coming back and 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 um, finding a healthy balance for itself, we don't have. You don't really have to look past um, a property like Goose Pond, which is the seven thousand acres out in Greene County that the state purchased a few years ago. And that property has only been open for business for a few years. It had been farmed for years and for for decades, for generations. That property had been farmed. Uh, the state came in, purchased it, and recreated some of the natural wetlands that had been there um, many moons ago. And after five years, we're seeing species there that we haven't seen in 50 years in Indiana. Uh, we have uh, – just let this last week there – or two weeks ago, there was 20,000 sandhill cranes moving through and white pelicans and just the, the diversity of, of species that have already found that property after it only being open for five years tells something about the optimism of the conservation work that Sycamore Land Trust and other groups like it around the country are doing. Um, You know, how do you get to be a a 200-year-old tree that's 15 feet across? You take a 2-year-old tree that's 15 millimeters across and you protect it with a land trust or with another conservation group. Um, And so I think there really is a lot of hope and optimism in our line of work, uh, regardless of how one feels about uh, the immediate impacts of logging.
1: That seems like a good note to end on. We're unfortunately out of time. I regret we we didn't get to get to many of our topics here, including wildlife that you just mentioned, Christian. But hopefully we can keep the conversation going online. Thanks for listening and for audio director Mike Pashkash producers Julie Raw and Gretchen Frazee. I'm Sarah Whitmire. Thanks for listening.